Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Saeed Al-Hassan Al-Khazraji, who is a Professor of Chemical and Petroleum Engineering at Khalifa University. He is an accomplished and prolific scholar, publishing nearly 150 articles, book chapters, uh, and he has 16 patents. And the list, I'm sure, will keep growing. Dr. Al-Khazraji's research expertise is in chemistry. To be more precise, he has an interest in sulfur, smart materials, hydrogels, nanoparticles, and colloidal, colloidal something, colloidals, colloids. I'm embarrassing myself. Uh, Professor Al-Khazraji is the first recipient of the inaugural Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Award for Scientific Excellence in 2017. And Professor Khazraji is one of those rare persons. Uh, you can tell as a researcher, he's an innovator. He's also an inventor. Um, he's the founder of Manhat, a deep tech star- startup, which focuses on technologies for sustainable water production, and these technologies are inspired by nature. Manhat's technologies have received fe- several accolades and awards um, from Water Europe, he received in, in Manhat received an Innovation Award, a Thought for Food, Mina Challenge Award, and a Toward Net Zero Award from the Arab Water Council. And quite fittingly, tonight he will give us a talk entitled On Water, a Natural Perspective. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Al Khazraji to the stage here tonight. Okay, this uh, mic is on, all right. All right, so uh, good evening. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Maurice and the Institute for inviting me for the second time. Uh, the last time was seven years ago. So I guess next time we'll do it in 2030, I believe, if my map is correct. Uh, so um, uh, the last, re- the last uh, uh, presentation was actually on sulfur. Uh, so, uh, and there was no recording of the uh, presentation. However, I hope today's lecture and presentation will be uh, informative. Uh, So the topic of my uh, presentation is uh, water. I have a keen interest in the subject um, uh, for different reasons, and I will explain part of the journey that allowed me to work on water, uh, which is crucial to life. So as we start, the first thing I would like to um, to discuss is kind of a psychological questions or or, uh, uh, or a slide. So if you look at this slide, I believe a lot of you will say that this is a black dot on a white background. Uh, some of you might say it's a white background uh, and black dot is just uh, missing uh, the whiteness of the, uh, the background itself. Now, 
for us as a humans, um, most likely we will look at the black dot more than the white background. And this is evident when we actually call things and name things. And the first thing we um, uh, apply this approach to is Earth. So if you look at Earth, um, planet Earth that is, um, is actually 71% water and 29% land. However, we call it Earth instead of calling it water. And this is a human-centric way of doing things. Um, and actually, in, in Arabic, uh, Earth and land have the same name. It's called Arv, uh, which again make it a little bit more about our environment rather than what is actually there. So with a planet that is 71% water and 29% land, we have to focus on the 71% before we think about the 29% land that we use uh, as, a, as a species to inhabit the land itself. So if we look at the uh, uh, breakdown of water, um, obviously water on Earth has three forms, whether it's liquid, is a solid, or a gas. And the classification of waters, it depends on where the water is and the level of salinity of the water. So we know that 96, almost 0.5% of all water is in the oceans. And the oceans are salty by default, and they are only suitable for species that can actually adapt to the uh, salinity of the ocean. And then you go up and you see that you have uh, saline lakes that forms about 0.07% of all the water on Earth. You have saline groundwater, which is 0.9%. Um, saline underground water is very, uh, uh, dominates the groundwater in Abu Dhabi and UAE. Uh, I will show later that the amount of uh, saline groundwater in Abu Dhabi is really significant. Then you have about 2.5% of fresh water that all uh, species depend on. So if you look at that and you break it down into uh, classifications, a lot of it is actually in the uh, ice caps and the glaciers, whether it's in the uh, Antarctica or the North Pole. And then a lot of it in the groundwater, um, almost 30%. So you have 1.3% of 2.5% of surface water and other fresh water which we all depend on uh, to sustain our, our life. Even that, you still have some of it is uh, trapped in the form of solid water, which is ice and snow. And then you have the fresh lakes, uh, soil in the moisture, rivers, biological water, and atmospheric water. So in all, the amount of fresh water that is available to humans is about 1%. And from all of this, is about 1% of that is actually uh, visible to us. That's why we gravitate toward lakes and rivers. And if you are, are lucky and you found uh, a groundwater source, then you will explore that and use it to sustain your life. So the question is, uh, if I'm talking about water, then I have to talk about how water is circulated in the in Earth itself. And this is very crucial because uh, this is what drives a lot of uh, human activities. We always try to find the source of fresh water. So, uh, to review uh, a few uh, elementary science, uh, water cycle starts effectively by evaporating water from open water surfaces. 
whether you have a pool, or you have an ocean, a river, a lake, even the Dead Sea loses water through evaporation. Evaporation is always happening every day. The evaporated water goes up into the atmosphere and it forms the clouds, which then uh, bring the water back in the form of rain or snow or fog and so on. And the cycle continues. Some of the water goes uh, as a surface runoff. Some of it will be uh, stored in groundwater. And some of it go back to the ocean through the river uh, cycle. I need to emphasize one key thing with the water cycle. Evaporation is the starting point. Because precipitation depends on many different conditions. You might get lucky to have precipitation but you are always lucky and you get evaporation if you have an open water surface. So let's look at uh, how much water evaporates from uh, different water bodies. If you look at the ocean, they lose about, when I say lose, um, they evaporate about 470,000 cubic kilometer of water per year. A lot of it goes back to the ocean because as I mentioned, 70% of all Earth is ocean. So because of the large surface area of the ocean, it goes back to the ocean itself. And the remaining almost 46,000 uh, cubic kilometer uh, precipitate in different locations, whether on uh, a mountain or an open land. And from all of this, uh, the human activities uh, linked to water usage is about 24,000 cubic kilometer. Now when I say human activities, it means everything even the activity that humans don't actually touch. So, the question is, if evaporation gives you so much water, how come we don't use this fact to our advantage? Now, if we examine the human uh, evolution and population in, in specific, uh, because a human population is always linked to water usage and uh, older civilizations are always uh, located in um, areas with rich water resources. So now I will focus on water usage that humans actually touch. I'm not talking about uh, usage that is for the forest and the green areas of, uh, uh, of our planet. And we see that there is a correlation. Uh, the population was about 1.6 billion in the uh, early part of the 20th century. And we consume about 579 uh, cubic kilometer of water per year. And obviously with more population, we're gonna use more water, right? So the number that I would like to focus on is the 5,000 almost uh, cubic kilometer of water that we have to use per year to sustain our, um, our livelihood. So if you look at this uh, uh, demand, where the water goes, you'll see that most of it goes for agricultural activities, uh, followed by domestic use, whether it's for sustaining human life uh, or using the water to irrigate uh, uh, your garden, um, or for cleaning and for um, taking showers and so on. And the industry uses about uh, uh, half of that uh, water demand. So again, if you look at all of these uh, uh, uses, 
the dominant one is the agricultural activity. When we talk about water, we always focus on domestic use. Um, when I talk about uh, the technology we developed, the first question people ask me is, can I drink the water that you produce using your technology? And I always try to tame these questions because it's always a human-centric thing. You still have a lot of species that do not have access to water, and we need to make sure that they do have access to water. Back in the day, they can always find sources of water because the sources of water are not contaminated. But a recent trend showed that a lot of water resources are being contaminated by human activities. So animals uh, will always now depend on us to provide fresh water for them. Um, so uh, that is uh, going back to the uh, black dot on a white board. Uh, look at the entire picture, don't focus always on one thing. So now the question is, water is a key issue when it comes to climate change. Uh, uh, and the argument is as follows. If we try to produce water in the most sustainable fashion, then we give ourselves a huge chance to combat and minimize the effect of climate change. Water always the starting point of a lot of the climate change issues. So I believe a lot of you have seen this graph uh, predicting the uh, increase in uh, global temperature. Uh, if we don't do anything versus if we do something. And obviously we've seen a lot of uh, uh, images, videos of the impact of global uh, uh, climate change on uh, different locations. You get the drought in some locations, you get a flood in other locations. Um, and the issue is that the infrequency of these uh, events is one of the biggest challenge. Um, uh, last year, if you recall, there was a huge, huge heat wave that impacted the amount of the rivers in Italy that they actually gone dry, uh, an event that does not happen that, uh, that frequent. And obviously, we, we recall also the uh, heavy rain that was uh, sustained in the eastern region of the UAE, where a lot of water has flooded areas uh, that usually don't get that amount of, uh, of rain anyway. So one of the other challenges with the climate change is um, the impact on uh, ice caps, glaciers, and how uh, island nations are coping up with the climate change, because they are the first uh, nations to be impacted by such change. So if we look at the uh, current projections of um, uh, melting of ice, we see that in the most drastic uh, uh, situation, the uh, glaciers, the Greenland, they are melting at the highest rate. Um, and then the impact will be basically an increase in sea level from uh, zero millimeter all the way to 35 millimeters. Uh, and this excess fresh water is lost to a saline water. So we are losing uh, our freshwater storage in ice and we make it more salty by basically allowing it to melt next to the ocean. So this can be uh, visualized by um, all the images that scientists have collected from different glaciers. This is in the United States. And you can see that the glaciers were much, much healthier. They are thicker. And then with time, with the human activities, they're starting to melt. Um, they do have some recovery, but if you look at the trends, we will lose a lot of the glaciers 
uh, without really utilizing it uh, in a proper way. So if you look at the water challenge, uh, one of the key issues that uh, we still always think about is access to clean water. And I mention this because uh, this is one of the um, uh, key issues facing uh, um, policy makers when it comes to providing uh, fresh water and drinkable water to almost two billion of people around the world. And um, it's, it's a driver because if two billion people cannot uh, get access to uh, climate, uh, to uh, safe water, then that will impact their livelihood and their potential will be wasted because of the lack of access to clean water. So this is going back to the black dot on white board. This is thinking about us as the black point and we need to fix this problem as soon as we can. So access to clean water is uh, not only something that any human would like, but also it was uh, uh, put in a policy by the United Nations uh, that clean water and sanitation is a uh, human um, and a key right for all people around the world. And it was uh, uh, labeled as uh, United Nations Sustainable Development Goal number six specifically. So I mentioned all of these uh, collection of information about uh, Earth, the water cycle, the impact of climate change on, on the water cycle overall, and what we can do about it. Uh, the question I would like to address also is uh, why did I involve myself in water? Um, I'm a chemical engineer. Uh, I came from the oil and gas background where our objective is to effectively make a lot of chemicals. Um, so the, the question is how did I end up working on water? So the story goes like this. So it was uh, 2013, I was watching um, a program by the National Geographic, and that program was focusing on how people survive uh, limited uh, access uh, to water. And they put examples in uh, Mongolia desert, and then an example in Algeria desert, and a third example in Chile, uh, where people live in high mountains, and they uh, need access to fresh water. So in the, uh, uh, in the presentation, uh, they were basically talking about, uh, in Chile, they have a lot of fog formation on daily basis. Uh, the uh, uh, cloud come from the Pacific Ocean, it goes to the mountains, and it forms fog. So the way they actually utilize this fog is to create, uh, or to use any mesh any fabric, they spread it in the top of the mountain and they allow the fog to uh, be in contact with this sheet and then the fog will, uh, will be collected uh, using these sheets. So I thought about it for a while and I asked myself, um, what exactly they have to do? Uh, it seems to me that it's a lot of work. They have to go to the highest point of the mountain to basically uh, uh, put the sheets, and then they allow the uh, water to be drained in channels. So it's a massive construction work. Uh, they have to spread it here. They have to create a channel to allow the water collected to be drained all the way to the village. And you see here uh, a village, uh, entire village basically building these uh, canals here. Uh, 
So when I looked at this, I asked myself, um, how can we make access to water much more manageable? And from day one, I knew that uh, currently if you want to get access to water, you have to spend energy. And specifically, you have to have access to electricity because electricity is running the world. It is the form of energy that will allow you to transport it with the highest efficiency. And then you use that electric energy to run something else. So I looked at the, uh, 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 the concept of energy, water, food nexus. And everybody is basically saying that uh, you cannot separate energy from water from food. While energy can take many different forms, this nexus is actually focused on electrical energy as a way to drive all the other processes. If I can generate electricity in an easy and sustainable fashion, in a cheap way, then I can produce water and then I can produce food. My thinking is energy has always been there. If you remember physics, energy is there. When I talk right now, I'm spending energy because my body cells basically have a chemical reactions to allow me to talk, to move, and to convert the chemical energy into uh, mechanical energy. But if you uh, think about it, and you look at all the forms of energy, when we talk about the nexus, everybody was focusing on the electrical energy because if you produce it, it is the best way to operate machineries and equipment to do whatever you want. But before the invention of electricity, people have always access to water and food. As long as they have access to a river and healthy land and arable land, then they can grow the food in a sustainable fashion. So my objective is, when I look at the energy water food nexus, is to basically try to eliminate the electrical form of energy in the process. Um, we know that effectively you can convert any form of energy to the other. So all of these energies can be converted to each other. But the one that everybody was talking about is electricity because it's the easiest uh, energy to be utilized to uh, run things. So that was the philosophy from day one. How can we try to make water without electricity? I'm not saying we, we, we can do it without energy because I still need the solar radiation, energy from the sun to run things. So with that in mind, let me just go back in memory lane and remind you about the uh, starting point of Abu Dhabi as, as a city. Um, this is Qasr al-Hassan in Abu Dhabi and it was established specifically to protect a water well that was discovered in Abu Dhabi. The uh, water tower was created to protect the precious water, which our area does not have access to. This region, because of the arid nature of the land, we have a desert and we have an ocean or a gulf. We do have some mountains, uh, definitely, and uh, water resources are scarce all over. So when I look at this, I ask myself, um, how did we survive all these years? Um, 
So in UAE, the water situation is as follows. We basically looked at the water situation and before the discovery of oil, we only depended on groundwater. And we protected that groundwater. That's why we created the Qasr al-Husn, for example, in Abu Dhabi, to protect that uh, fresh uh, water source. After the discovery of oil, we have access to capital, and we can actually create water using technology that have been developed throughout the years. So, currently UAE produces or uses about 3.7 cubic kilometer of fresh water per year. Okay? 3.7 cubic kilometer of water uh, per year. And we do it by basically desalinating uh, water from the Gulf or the Gulf of Oman on the other side. Um, if you look at it, um, if you think about it, the amount of water we use is actually not, uh, is, is less than the amount of water we receive from the rain. Uh, despite having an arid land, we still receive five cubic kilometer of water per year. Now, uh, this number uh, effectively is about all the rain that basically uh, precipitate in the entire UAE. And the challenge with the rain in UAE is that it's uh, seasonal, obviously, uh, and we can only store it in dams, which, by the way, don't have a lot of capacity anyway. So the capacity of all dams in the UAE is about 0 0.09 cubic kilometer. So you see these uh, uh, images, um, a lot of um, Emiratis enjoying the weather and they have an excess water actually being washed out and will evaporate anyway. And we have uh, uh, rainy events that happens every uh, blue moon, I have to say. So, for us in UAE to sustain our economy, we need to always produce water from desalination. The other issue in UAE is one of the big uh, challenge for us is, historically we never had a lot of water, right? It's always underground water, and to get the underground water, it takes a lot of effort. And because of that, plus we have an arid land, we don't have a lot of arable land that we can use to actually uh, grow our crops that we can use. So effectively, UAE right now, in these days, um, the area that is suitable for farming is about 0.7% of the total area, or, or about 585 cubic kilometers. And obviously, we already established that because we don't have water, fresh water resources, we cannot grow a lot of our crops, so we import almost 90% of our crops to the UAE. All right, so the question is, what would be the challenge uh, when it comes to desalination? So I mentioned that we basically produce most of our water through desalination. What's so bad with desalination? Okay. So if you look at the uh, desalination process, you always take the water from the ocean or the gulf, and you pass it through different steps, and the final step if you get uh, drinking water. So our focus is always on this drinking suitable water for our use. But desalination right now, especially the one that uses reverse osmosis, have two issues. If you look at this uh, picture here, most of the water, uh, so once you process the water, you have to 
send back some of it to the ocean. So this water we call it brine. And the way it works is really simple. You have a saline water, you put it in the process, and you effectively split the water into two halves almost. One half has less salt, and the salt has to be moved to the second half. So the second half will be saltier. will have a lot of salt, even more than the salt of the ocean itself that you pull the water from. So this brine is one of the Achilles heels of desalination. And the brine, if you send it back to the, uh, to the ocean or the Gulf, it will have an impact on the aquatic life because the salinity is almost double the salinity of the starting uh, seawater, plus it has chemical that comes through the process itself. You're passing your water through more than 20 machines, it will pick up some impurities, it will pick up some metals and so on. And it's actually one of the biggest issues in desalination. Not only that, you actually produce more brine than fresh water. And the ratio is almost uh, uh, 1.5 to 1. That's basically the nature of the beast. The reverse osmosis, desalination, which depends on electricity, is the most energy efficient, but you have to produce a brine that you need to send back to the ocean. The second issue is the way you generate electricity to run the operation, until now, most of it, almost 90% of it, is done through burning of fossil fuels. And obviously there is a CO2 emission tag to that that you cannot get rid of for at least 20, 30 years. Because the energy mix is still evolving toward less fossil fuel, but it's still not to the point where it's totally eliminated. So with these two things in mind, I said, okay, what shall we do with all of this? How can we still produce water without emitting CO2, without uh, producing brine, and uh, sticking to our philosophy of producing water without electricity? So it's time for an anchor. Let's say I presented this before, and I explained the water cycle. So the answer is in nature. It was always there. You just need to see closer. I mentioned that evaporation is the only thing that happens all the time. Precipitations happen depends on your location and your geography. So if evaporation happening every day consistently, why don't we basically try to produce water by capitalizing on something that's happening every day. So let me put some perspective on what does this mean. If we examine the Arabian Gulf, it's a decent body of water. It has high salinity. So how much water evaporates from the Arabian Gulf per year? And the answer is almost about 350 cubic kilometer of water per year. And this is at the lower estimate. There are estimates stating that it can reach up, up to 1,000. All of this water vapor goes up into the atmosphere, 
and form the clouds and precipitate the water into somewhere else. Recall that UAE receives about five cubic kilometers of precipitation per year. So if I'm doing any math balance, I would say, why don't we get more than, than five uh, cubic kilometers? Because the water that we lose from the Arabian Gulf, which the UAE is part of, is a huge quantity. So to put this in perspective, if you look at all desalination plants in the world, whether they are in the UAE or Saudi Arabia or Algeria, all desalination plants, almost 100,000 desalination plants around the world, with all their might, they produce 35 cubic kilometers of water per year. Arabian Gulf produced 10 times that quantity. It's a massive source of water that goes up in the air and doesn't come back. So at the time I said, okay, how can we capitalize on this evaporated water? And I said, why don't we put a cap on the entire body of water? And it's possible if we put a gigantic dome on the Arabian Gulf, I will produce about 350 cubic kilometers of water per year. This is almost uh, what the Greeks tried to do when they erected the Colossus of Rhodes back in the day. Uh, it depends on the description. Some people state that it's actually not on the top of water, it was on the side. But you get the point. Why don't you put a gigantic cap to keep the water inside, collect that fresh water, which will be lost to the atmosphere and doesn't come back to us. Well, this is a little bit uh, uh, um, uh, too aggressive. It's a good for a plot in a Hollywood movie. But the idea caught my attention. And I remember a lot of things that happened uh, throughout the days by living in the UAE. So one of the things that we always see in UAE is the following uh, uh, observation. If you have any bottle of water and you drink half of it and you keep it in the car, you come back the next day and you see condensation on your water bottle. So this picture, I took it uh, almost a month ago of someone basically throwing the water bottle. And if you look at this, it's really simple. Water at the bottom is liquid, it evaporates, and at night, the water will condense because that's basically what happens in nature. The condensation step in nature happens when you have low temperature or different in pressure or high attitude. But inside a bottle of water, it happens because of the difference in temperature between the day and the night. And for those who are uh, uh, eagle eye in watching movies, the same thing was featured in uh, Life of Pi. If you recall, he survived by using this uh, small equipment. Uh, it's called uh, uh, solar still equipment. And it's a concept that is ancient. So if you look at this um, uh, equipment here and you Google it, you will realize that you can buy it from the market. Uh, the way you operate it is basically you open it, you put the sea uh, water inside, the water will evaporate, condenses, and you collect it from the side. But uh, there are two issues with this. First of all, it's very expensive uh, because it's designed for survival. 
And anything for survival will be costly. If you are in the desert and you are thirsty, and someone will tell you, I will give you a diamond or a bottle of water, which one you're gonna take? You're gonna take water. Because diamond for you is uh, immaterial. You want to survive. So that's why it's extremely costly. 700 dirham for this piece of plastic is a lot. The second issue with this uh, uh, device, when I looked at it, I said, uh, you have to put the seawater inside, the water evaporates, and then you have to clean it afterwards. So uh, I asked myself and my lazy uh, uh, personality a little bit, tell me, this is too much work. I put the water in, take the salt out, put water in. I said, why don't I convert this process into a process that can be managed without dealing with the salt? So in the engineering uh, language, I want to convert this process from a batch process to a semi-batch process. So this is what I did. I said, why don't I put a device, whether it's uh, anchored to the uh, seabed or floating, that has a communication with water so that when water evaporates and goes up, condenses, the salt will remain inside and it will not be part of the process because the seawater as a reservoir is very huge um, and it is in communication with my device, I don't have to produce the water. In the process, if you look at it, I'm not using any electricity because this is a passive approach. All right. And if I don't produce electricity, then by default, I'm not emitting CO2 because electricity will always emit CO2, usually. And I also get rid of the brine problem, the problem that is impacting the aquatic life. So we put this pin on the classical concept of solar still, and we got three patents out of it. The question is, uh, does it really work? Uh, have we tried it? Have we tested? And the answer is yes. So we tested this technology in different locations. We collaborated with Abu Dhabi ports and they gave us access to Zaid port where we put uh, two devices and they gave us access to Khalifa port where we put one device. And also we do have our family farm that actually use reverse osmosis to purify the underground water because it's highly saline. And because of the reverse osmosis process, we have a brine pool and the freshwater pool. So I put my unit in the brine pool to produce water. And this design is at this stage is a prototype. Uh, it's still large to my liking and relatively uh, still expensive. But the point is we want to use this uh, prototype to showcase the technology and how it works. The water we produce is the purest water you can imagine because it's a distillation process. You don't have any salt, you don't have any electrolyte, you don't have any impurities. And this fresh water, our focus will be on irrigation because irrigation is the most underserved part of the water cycle. Now, 
the last part is, is it possible to use this technology to satisfy the UAE requirements for water? I mentioned early on that UAE produces 3.7 cubic kilometer of water per year. Can I use the technology that I developed to satisfy this requirement? And what is the challenge? What is the issue? If you do the math and you look at the amount of water evaporating from the Arabian Gulf, the only thing you need to worry about is the area you need to cover to produce such water. How large is the area that you need to cover to produce the water? And if you do the math, then you need about 2,600 cubic kilometer of area to place these devices or the gigantic cap to produce the amount of water required for the entire UAE. So replacing all the desalination plants in UAE by covering this area. Now, is this a huge area? Um, it requires about 3.1% of total land area of UAE. But one thing that I need to mention is this area can also be in the Gulf itself. Because our device is floating, you don't ha always have to put it in land in an artificial pool. You can also put it in the actual Gulf and you protect it in a way so it can produce water. And the last thing I'd like to mention is that while this is a huge area, it's actually uh, five times the arable lands requirements for the UAE. If you don't want to use the water for human consumption, you can use it for irrigation purposes. And our technology can be integrated in a way that the same area I need to produce the water will be used to irrigate crops. And this way, I solve one of the biggest challenges in the UAE. How you can provide enough water to irrigate crops, not only irrigating crops, but doing it without emitting CO2, without producing brine, and without using electricity, as nature intended. So with this, I leave you with the black dot and the white background as a reminder that you can always look at the black dot, but you can also look at it comprehensively. You should not separate the black from the white, and that's what I would like to conclude. So with this, I thank you so much for your attention. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.